Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth? Uh, it's chapter 9 of the story as we continue our journey through the scriptures. Uh, today, you know, this is going to be easy. I only have four chapters to cover this morning. I've been doing whole books or two books at a time here, uh, going through the others. So today we're going to look at the story of, of Ruth. And I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Father, again, it's just a delight to come to your word. It is so powerful. It is timeless. It speaks to our situations today. And we see ourselves in the stories. We see how you worked in the lives of other people in distant lands and distant times, and yet you are the same God. And you work in life situations today with whatever we may be dealing with. And I praise you for that. And I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning as we look at the scripture and speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, there was a young boy who wanted an Xbox game system for Christmas. And so he put that on his wish list, you know, and he'd leave hints for his parents, you know, that this is what he really wanted. And, you know, he'd take ads from the Sunday paper and strategically lay them out, you know, where they could be seen and things like that. Because he was really excited. I mean, he wanted to be like his friends and get this latest gaming system. Well, finally, Christmas arrived. And you can imagine, you know, uh, if you have children, you know, the anticipation, excitement of Christmas and the gifts being there. And he thought he had spied out the box that was it. This is going to be the box. And he would be able to open it and he could set it up and play games to his heart's delight. Well, when he got to that box and he began to open it up, you know, and he tore off the paper of it, he was really shocked by what it said. Instead of saying Xbox gaming system on the box, it said pottery wheel kind of a do-it-yourself, you know, make-your-own-fun Christmas gift. <laughs> and this was not at all what he expected. He was crushed. And in his mind, he's thinking, I mean, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, didn't my parents hear me? Don't they understand? I'll be embarrassed with my friends. In fact, he was so disappointed that he didn't even open the box and he walked out of the room. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been so disappointed on something that happened that you just really didn't know what to do? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Maybe, you know, uh, you uh, got married expecting that marriage was going to be wonderful and everything was going to go smoothly and you'd live happily ever after and you opened that box of marriage and it wasn't what you expected it to be. And it was harder than you thought, or there were challenges along the way, and maybe you came to the point even where you are separated or you are divorced. And it wasn't at all what you expected it was going to be. Or maybe you thought, you know, I'll go to college and I'm, I'm going to study what I really want to study. It's my passion, you know, and I'll, I'll get this good job afterwards and I'll make a, a lot of money or at least enough to live on, you know, and that's going to be great. And you went to college, and you got your degree, you know, and you opened that box. And when you got out of college, you couldn't find a job in the field that you wanted to be in. And now you're waiting on tables, or you're a clerk, or you're doing something you didn't expect to do. Or maybe even 
you were excited as a couple about having children, you know, and you opened that box of parenting. And you thought, this is going to be just wonderful, and everything's going to go the way that I, I had planned. But you opened that box of parenting, and maybe a child was born with a disability that challenged you, or maybe that box of parenting was opened, and your children have grown older, and they aren't walking with God like you thought. And you're wondering, God, what happened? In life, we will have disappointments. The question is, what do we do with them? How do we handle our disappointments? Do we just close up the box and storm out of the room? Do we get mad at God and do we blame Him or blame our spouse or blame somebody else for what's happened? How do we deal with our disappointments? Well, today we're going to look at the book of Ruth. And it is a story of disappointment. It's a story of loss, but it has a happy ending. And I like stories like that, don't you? You know, stories where there is struggle and it's real life and there are real situations. But in this case, it has a happy ending. It is said in the time of the judges, this dark period in Israel's history that we looked at last week, Uh, And it comes like a breath of fresh air. If you have ever read through the scriptures, starting at Genesis, you know, and you go through the book of Judges, and you read that last story that's in the book of Judges, that is just horrific. I mean, it's just awful. It shows the depravity and evilness, the vileness of man. And you go, oh, God, help us. And then you come to the book of Ruth, and you read this story. That's a love story, too. And you go, God, thank you. Thank you that there is hope. Because what God wants us to remember is that God is at work even in those dark times. And he has not forgotten his people. So how do we handle disappointment? So that's what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to encourage you to do three things. Number one, to watch for God's fingerprints. Watch for God's fingerprints. When you're going through a tough situation or when you're going through life and things don't seem to add up or seem to go the way that you thought, look for God's activity in your life and see what he may be up to. The story of Ruth begins with a young couple, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. So here he is. He's a a believer. He's part of the uh, community of faith, the people of God. And he has a name that says, My God is King. And Naomi's name means pleasant or lovely. She's a beautiful young woman, you you can imagine, who is married and they're excited about marriage, you know. And they have two sons, Malon and Killian. Two little boys. And life is grand. It's wonderful. They are a beautiful young couple with great expectations, but life doesn't go like they planned. There's a problem. They live in Bethlehem, just uh, about five miles or so outside of Jerusalem to the south. They live in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. Beth or Beit, house, and Lechem, bread. So it's house of bread. But there's an irony here. There's a problem. There's a famine in the land. So they're living in this place that's supposed to be one of bounty and provision, but they have no bread. 
there's this famine going on, and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, they decide to make a major move to Moab, to go outside of the promised land into Moab. And this couldn't have been an easy decision for them because Moab, I mean, the Moabites were ancient enemies of Israel. They had fought, they had battled, they had gone back and forth. Moab was hostile to Israel, and they worshipped pagan gods. They worshipped the god Chemosh. I mean, there were people who sacrificed their children to this God. This is really stepping outside the promised land, outside of God's providence. These were a people that did not know the living God. There was sexual immorality that continued from the time that they were conceived to this very day. And so this doesn't seem to be a wise move at all, but they're desperate. They have no food, and they're trying to find a place where they can go. So they move to Moab, and Elimelech dies. Whoa. Naomi is now a widow with two sons. And her sons grow up, and they marry Moabite women, unbelievers. I mean, I can see Naomi going, you know, God, this is not what I planned at all. I mean, here, here I thought that we were going to, you know, follow you and you would bless us and things would go smoothly and life would be great. And now she has no husband and her sons have married Moabite women and then it gets worse again. Naomi's two sons die and she is left alone in a foreign land. God, what have I done? And what do I do now? Have you ever felt like Naomi? Can you put yourself in her situation of what that must have felt like? I mean, maybe you are a widow or divorced. Or maybe you are facing a famine of sorts in your own life where there is a shortage of money or you don't have a job or you made some bad choices and life didn't go as you planned and now you're stuck. And you're wondering, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? Where do you turn? Well, Naomi returned home. She urged her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And Orpah, one of her daughter-in-laws, would stay. And they wept as they said goodbye. But Ruth refused to leave her. Now, Naomi's relationship with her daughters-in-law must have been pretty good because of that. Because Ruth loved her mother-in-law, and it seems, we're not told all or how this has happened, but it seems here that Ruth has now become a believer in the God of Israel, the living God. Because in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this would be on page 122 in the story, Ruth uh, makes this statement. Ruth said to her, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Now you've probably heard those words before, but in a little different context. 
I mean, those words are often read at a wedding as a commitment of a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, you know, of that kind of faithfulness. And, and I'm not going to leave you and nothing's going to separate till death parts us. But it's interesting that those words were first spoken from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. A commitment that your God will be my God and I will not leave you. So when Naomi sees that Ruth is intent on this, uh, they travel together back to Bethlehem. And when they come to Bethlehem, the people there who knew Naomi in the past see her, you know, and, and there's a little bit of talk. You know, it's a smaller community. They're wondering, is this really Naomi? I mean, she looks so different. What's happened here in her life? What's going on here? And Naomi, who feels empty at this point, says to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because she felt empty, and her life had been very bitter up to this point. But in coming back to Bethlehem and returning into the promised land and turning back to the Lord, what Naomi and Ruth were doing was they were putting their trust in the Lord. Naomi and Ruth put their trust in the Lord. And then I want you to see in the text the coincidences that followed. And you know coincidences for a believer are not by chance, they're not by accident. They are God-directed, and we see God's fingerprints all over this. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, and arriving in Bethlehem, or they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So out of all the time that they could have come, you know, here they had left in a famine, now they come back, and it just happens to be harvest time. The barley is being harvested. The famine is over. And then you go a little farther, and Ruth volunteers to go out and to pick grain, to glean grain. That was a law in Israel that you weren't to harvest your fields to the edge, but you were to leave grain along the edges for the alien or the stranger or the widow or the orphan or those who needed land. The poor would have something to eat. And so Ruth goes out, and she uh, begins to glean from the harvest. And it just happens to be in the field of Boaz who is a relative of Naomi. And not only that, in, in verse 3 here it says, she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, there's one of those coincidences, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And in verse 4 it says, just then, another one of those coincidences, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they called back. And then Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? And the foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. And so the connection is being made, and down in verse 11 we read that Boaz had heard about Ruth's loyalty and her character, her faithfulness to Naomi, and when he meets her, he blesses her for that. And then another coincidence, down in chapter 2, verse 20, 
When Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells what happened that day, Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And so out of all the fields that Ruth could have gone to, she ends up in the field of this relative, uh, Boaz, who has heard her story, who remembers Naomi, and who looks after Ruth. And Naomi begins to put these pieces together, that God is at work. And I would say to you that God is at work in the circumstances of our lives too. Now, an unbeliever will be skeptical of that, or they'll like to think that these things were just chance or dumb luck or, you know, well, it just really did kind of happen by accident that way. I love the answer of a believer who was trying to explain prayer to his friend, and he said to him, finally, he said, listen, all I know is I have a lot more coincidences when I pray than when I don't pray. Okay, you know, and, and you see God at work. You see him doing that. And so I would encourage you, if you're dealing with disappointment or loss or difficulties in your life, watch for God's activity. What is he up to? What is he doing? And then secondly, wait for God's timing. We see that in Ruth chapters 2 and 3. Now, waiting for God's timing can be hard for us to do because we'd like to run ahead or we'd like to have everything fixed and over right now or solved and put together. But God's timing usually isn't the same as our timing. And he's up to something else. And what Ruth and Naomi found was they found God's provision by waiting. They found his provision by waiting and not trying to make it happen themselves. Now, waiting doesn't mean inactivity. It doesn't mean doing nothing. Uh, If you are looking for a job, it doesn't mean that you just sit by the phone waiting for somebody to call. I mean, you do put your name out there. You do look at places or try to network or get your name or contacts or you're, you're doing that. And the same thing too. You know, if you're looking for a husband or a wife, it doesn't mean that you just sit at home alone doing nothing. But you put yourself in places where you can meet other people. And Ruth, in this situation, consulted Naomi and followed her counsel. Naomi saw God's hand at work, and so she told Ruth to do these things. In chapter 2, verse 22, she said, Ruth, stay in the field of Boaz. You'll be safer there. Don't go to another field. Don't go to another person that you don't know because she knew for this foreign woman in Israel that if she went to a stranger's field and that stranger was not of the same character, Ruth could be in harm's way. It could be very difficult for her. So stay in the field of Boaz. And then later, chapter 3, she's going to tell her when the time's appropriate, she says, Ruth, I want you to wash and I want you to put on your best clothes and some perfume. I want you to make yourself attractive and go to Boaz. And then as we saw in the DVD that was showing up here, she tells her to do this thing that to us seems a little forward or even maybe a little strange, that while he is laying down in his tent, I want you to go and I want you to uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. And he will tell you what to do. Now, that wasn't strange in that time. 
and it wasn't immoral. There's nothing immoral going on here. What she was doing, though, was she was making a request for marriage, asking Boaz to be her protector. It was, it was bold. It was putting yourself out there in a sense of taking a risk to do this, but it was not something that was unknown in their culture. It was something that was done. And in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that Ruth obeyed Naomi. And she said, I will do whatever you say. So when Boaz goes to sleep that night and lays down, falls asleep, she goes and she went to his room, uncovered his feet, lay at his feet until morning. And he woke up and he was startled and surprised to see her there. And he asked, who are you in the darkness? And she said, I am your servant Ruth. Would you spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer? Now let me explain a couple things here. When you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz met Ruth and heard what she had done, how she had left her father and her mother and her homeland and came to live with Naomi in Israel, he said in verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth took refuge under the wings of God. Beautiful picture or metaphor. Here she is, taking refuge under God's care. And what Ruth was doing in this marriage proposal, if you will, is that she was asking Boaz, would you also take me under your wing? and be my protector and defender. And Boaz is honored by her request. He said, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This is in chapter 3, verse 10. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Boaz, again, is honored by her request. You know, it takes wisdom and discernment for us to know when to wait on God and when to move ahead when we walk with Him. And sometimes that's hard. I mean, that's where we need to learn to listen to the Spirit, and sometimes we may not get it quite right. But God knows our heart, and if our heart is to do His will you know, and we're moving along and walking with him, God's going to direct us. It's a whole lot easier to steer us when we are moving and following his will. And he'll bring the right counsel in our life or he ordains our circumstances and things will work out. And sometimes we wrestle with questions like marriage. You know, is this a time to get married or not? Do we wait or do we move forward on that? Birth of a child, buying a house, making a move. All those kind of things we are to put before the Lord and trust Him. And I know in our marriage relationship, you know, I think about in particular when we were thinking about buying a house and we had a situation where we were coming around to that decision kind of every year toward the spring wondering, is this the year? Is this the time? And I'm so glad that we waited for God's timing on that when it felt right and we had a peace about it and moved forward because it was a much better set of circumstances at that time. 
in decisions at church about building projects. We've prayed and waited, and I trust you to be part of that decision. Even, you know, in our recent congregational meeting when we brought the proposal to look for a full-time worship pastor, and we asked you, what do you think? And you voted on that, on the recommendation of the elders and the board, and it was such a strong, strong vote. I mean, that gives real encouragement going forward that God is in this. And we're looking for his fingerprints and his handiwork and trusting that he's going to bring the right person at the right time because this is his church. It's not our church, not my church. It's his church, and we are here to follow his lead. The Scripture gives us this counsel in Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Not running ahead of Him, not lagging behind Him, but keeping in step. And the only way that we can know that is to walk with Him, to pray, to seek counsel in His Word and with other believers and watch for what He is doing in our world. We don't want to run ahead. We want to be right where God is, in step with Him. Well, thirdly, I encourage you to wonder at God's plan. You're watching, you're waiting, and now comes the time to wonder in amazement at what God is doing, and we see that in chapter 4. Boaz replies to Ruth that he wants to marry her, but he tells her that there is a kinsman redeemer who is closer than I. There's actually one other relative that's nearer than I am, and he will have the first choice on this matter of buying back the land, redeeming that, and taking Ruth to be his wife. So Boaz arranges a meeting in the city gates. That's where they did things in a public way with the elders of the city. And he will come and he will make his request. In chapter 4, it begins in verse 2. And let me read part of it. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and he said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggested you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. And so this man said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then it adds this note, so we understand what's going on. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Kind of interesting how they would do things at that time. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records today you are witnesses and they all said we are witnesses 
Now, it's interesting. Here he is. He's doing everything in a very proper way. Boaz is a good man. He's honest. He's a man of integrity and character. And now he is given the right to purchase the property and to marry Ruth, and he will do so. Now, I want to just kind of fill you in. If you're not familiar with the concept of the kinsman redeemer, what is that about? Well, the kinsman redeemer is a messianic type. It's another one of those pictures in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would be like. So when you see this person who fulfills these requirements, these qualifications of the kinsman redeemer, you will see what the Messiah will do. And he tells us there were four things that were a part of it. Number one, a kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative. Had to be near of kin. A blood relative. It is why Jesus became a man. He became like us. It said, secondly, a kinsman redeemer must be able to purchase the forfeited inheritance. He must have the means to do it. The money to do it, in this case, to buy the land. But in Jesus' case, to redeem us, he had to be able to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He had to be spotless without sin he had to have fulfilled all the requirements of the law in God's sight and that is what Jesus did and thirdly he must be willing to buy back what was lost in this story in Ruth the first relative was unwilling to do that he didn't want to take the risk put his property or his family at risk and so he said no Boaz took that risk Jesus willingly died for you and me And fourth, he must be willing to marry the wife of the deceased kinsman. And in Scripture, we learn that the church is the bride of Christ. And he willingly took us in that kind of relationship. And he's looking forward to that day in heaven when the marriage supper of the Lamb will be celebrated. Boaz is a type of Christ. He did what Jesus would do. And so in the story, when we go on, Boaz and Ruth are married. But the story doesn't end there. They have a little boy, a little boy named Obed. Here's where I thought about inserting some pictures of grandchildren, but I resisted. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, but you can imagine Naomi, who has gone through all this loss and all this time of waiting, now taking in her arms this little baby boy, Obed, and loving him. Well, Obed, we are told, will become the grandfather of King David. I mean, here you have this story ending where this then is the family line of Perez, who is the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king of Israel. It's amazing. But that's not all. I mean, Ruth the Moabite, because she's an ancestor in the line of David, will also be an ancestor in the line of Christ. I mean, she's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 in that genealogy there. There she is, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Boaz. And not only that, but in Matthew chapter 1, Boaz, who married Ruth, 
was the son of or the descendant of Rahab, the prostitute, the woman who helped the Israelite spies and who became part of the covenant family. Wow, that's amazing to look back and to think about all of these things and how God was bringing into this family line of Jesus the Gentiles, even at that early a date. It really is an amazing story. It begins with a famine. It ends with a harvest. It begins with a funeral. Actually, there are three funerals going on, and it ends with a wedding. And it begins with a woman, Naomi, who felt empty, who felt like life was bitter. This is not what I planned. And the story ends with fullness and joy. A woman who sees her grandson and a grandson who becomes one of the ancestors of David and of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You see, we never know how God may use us to accomplish His plans. You have this upper story going on where God is at work and our stories fit into His plan, but in this lower story where we live, we don't always see how the two fit together. And we may not honestly see it until we get to heaven. But God is at work in the circumstances of our lives. Do you remember the story I told at the beginning about the boy who opening the Christmas present, just unwrapping it, was really upset and he stormed out of the room? Well, his mom went to him and he said, Honey, you never opened the box. And she brought him back and he opened the box and there within the box was another box. It was the Xbox and then it was a bunch of games there that she said, honey, they just wouldn't all fit into the one box. And so she had put it inside this other box. It was everything that he wanted. It just wasn't what he expected. And God does that too. Sometimes his best gifts come in unexpected packages. It wasn't the way that we thought life was going to go. But God did something that was pretty awesome and amazing through the circumstances of our life. So when life doesn't go as you expected, don't give up on God. Watch for His fingerprints. Wait on His timing. And wonder at His plan. What do we learn from this chapter of the story? We learn that even in the darkest times, God is still at work. We learn that the gospel is for all people, Jew and Gentile, and this is just the foretaste of it. Because one day when we gather around that throne, there are going to be people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. And we learn most of all that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a type of Christ. His life foreshadows what Jesus would do for us. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story this is. And even for us today, on a day when it's dark outside, this is a story that warms our hearts. And Father, you know our circumstances. I know that some of the people here today are going through tough things in their life right at this moment. And God, I pray that you would show yourself, show your glory, show what you are doing, Help us to wait on your timing and to put our trust in you even as Ruth and Naomi did. And God, I pray for all that that day comes when we will just wonder in amazement at what you did. 
because you are a good and loving God. We pray in your name. Amen.